guys up here to share. Morning. Well, as Jeff said, we are going to Argentina. Uh, we were consecrated as full-time missionaries just this past week in Detroit with the Covenants AGM. Um, we, Max will share more about what we're going to be doing down there. And it's been pretty exciting as things have been unfolding and we've been learning more. Right now, we've completed our missionary training in Chicago and we'll be doing some ongoing training for the vitality program pathway that the covenant conference is going through down there our visas are pretty much in place we are in the fundraising process right now and before we embark on transitioning and moving to argentina for our two-year posting we do need to raise 80 percent of our budget um, and yeah, um, continued prayers for the sale of our home. We do have an offer right now, so we're just praying for the completion of that and then all the downsizing and just all those little details of preparing to, to go to Argentina to our new home. Yeah, so um, this, the training um, experience that we've had uh, so far in Chicago and uh, and as we're meeting people um, in, uh, uh, we were in Ontario here just uh, doing some a tour of the churches. Um, so yeah, it's been great. Um, our immediate future is going actually going to involve um, a road trip. <laughs> we're going to be going to the middle part of Canada, which is a fairly large place, but we're used to traveling around large places. So um, yeah, this will be a driving tour. So it's going to be a whole lot of fun. Um, and we'll be we'll be meeting churches and and mission committees that we um, put uh, put the work in with at the AGM. So this is all coming out of a couple mo a month a couple months past. Uh, and after that, we'll be yeah we're uh, the ECC will not let us go without 80% of our funding. That's not our goal. We're looking for 110% because that's a whole lot. Uh, uh, we believe in it. our God is big and uh, that uh, he can do that for us. So we, that's what we'll be working towards. Um, yeah, when we get down to Argentina, we've really had some awesome confirmations of uh, just our mindset going into this. Uh, has been God has been uh, gracious to us and offered us um, some clarity on t as to what that'll look like. And it's going to be... Um, uh, come in the form of the vitality pathway. Some of you that were with our church before Jeff arrived, we, you know, you've seen the beginning stages of that vitality pathway. Um, and the Argentinian conference has decided to take that on as, as, um, as a way to move all their churches forward and to keep the pulse checked and keep uh, the Missio Dei uh, alive and well in their churches. And going out and working where God is already working and joining into that. So that's going to be uh, the backdrop to what we're doing there in Argentina, and it's, it's, it's just a great um, confirmation that we're, we're on that path because we were already, God had already planted that seed in our mind that that's what it was going to be, so now we have more of the, um, the uh, logistics of how it's going to be the, uh, uh, how do you say, um, yeah, the, just the, the framework of what it's going to be, the backdrop to our mission. 
as well as working with all the churches individually. So that's, um, yeah, really, really exciting um, to see that come together. And yeah, we're, we're just, we've been learning through this process just to trust God and just, uh, we've been asked, when are you going? Well, God knows when we're going. <laughs> when we get that 80%, that'll be a good indication. But, you know, we've, we, a lot of the angst and anxiety of the whole, uh, situa- the whole process is when we start to put our, our, get our goals and our ideas and, and focus in on that rather than just let the Holy Spirit lead us and take hold of us by the, the collar and, or by the hand <laughs> and, and, and pull us through. And, and that, the joy that comes from that, uh, when you really feel that, that, that pulling of the Holy Spirit, that has been really awesome to us, uh, an awesome feeling. And uh, on that note, we've seen some of our um, uh, pledge cards coming in and, and donations coming in. And for the ECC, ECCC, that's our Canadian conference, they're the ones that are actually doing the accounting part. And I didn't realize how uh, much of an encouragement that would be to actually see all of you and people all throughout Canada going, we believe in you, we believe in your mission, we believe that you're... Uh, you're being sent uh, out by God that he's, his hand is fully in this and uh, just the joy in my heart and Colleen's heart for that has been awesome so uh, I thank you, invite you downstairs to, uh, um, to partake of a meal with us and, uh, and support us and come on o- over and talk to us about what we're doing we'd, just, we'd love to just ramble on about it <laughs> but uh, Jeff, you better take the mic from me here, brother. <laughs> All right. Let, let me pray for you guys. Let's, let's pray together. God, this couple has become a couple that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, just seeing over two years how you have led them and are leading them into this mission field has been really exhilarating to see. And uh, it's great to hear that people are partnering with them. And continue to raise up people, God, who um, understand and appreciate the nature of what they're doing, helping to bring the gospel and transformation to bear on uh, South American churches. Bless them, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. The, uh, if you want to write a check today, that we can get you a receipt for that. Just write it to... Um there's instructions downstairs so you can put an envelope in and we can get you a receipt for that too. Awesome. Thanks, Max. So as oh, good. Okay. So as we prepare ourselves for a time of communion, let that be an inspiration to us. Some of us may not be called to missions overseas, but we're all called to participate in the mission of God, to seek and save the lost. And we come to this table eating bread and juice to remind us that God hasn't sent us on this mission. Um, God is not calling us to do something that he didn't do first. We love because he first loved us. And he gave his son as a sacrifice and propitiation for our sins. So we are, as Galatians 5.1 says, we are imitating Christ by moving into the mission of God in our everyday life. So let's ask God for strengthening and sustaining as we do that. God, we want to be a people on mission. We want to be a church on mission. Some of us are figuring out what that looks like. Some of us know and are fully engaged. Some of us are scared of what that would look like to step into that. 
there's uncertainty, there's hesitation, God. God, as we gather as a family, as your family, redeemed by Jesus, would you bring clarity to our hearts? Would you strengthen us where there needs to be uh, fresh encouragement? And God, would we examine our hearts this morning? Before we come forward, would we ask ourselves, uh, am I willing to step into the mission of God? Am I willing to follow this Jesus who has come and sought me? Am I going to go out and use the gifts and the personality and the resources that God has given me to love and serve this world in Jesus' name? Our world is hungry for that God. Our world is incredibly needy for Christians to be on mission. So would you empower us this morning? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds these words, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'm going to invite my communion helpers forward. And then what's going to happen is the team is going to uh, invite everyone to continue in worship. And when you feel ready, if you are a follower of Christ, what we'd invite you to do is to come down this center aisle, and there'll be kind of two lines, and we'll give you a piece of bread, and then you'll go to the next person and dip it, and then you can eat it right away. And then you can return to your seat, worship, pray, uh, sit and contemplate, it's, uh, it's all good. And so the team will lead us down in worship, and once we're set up here and ready, you can come forward.
We feed on your grace this morning, and I pray that we wouldn't feed on your grace in vain, that it would be a fire in our hearts and souls. We want more of you, and that would be expressed in a creative, dynamic, passionate pursuit of you through our everyday lives, that we would love recklessly in your name, we would reach out to the lost and to the hurting, and that we would continue to grow in our understanding of what it means to step into your mission in this world. Amen. As we prepare for a time of offering, uh, just to let people know if you're a guest or visitor, uh, in the few moments a plate's going to get passed and we don't want you to feel any obligation to give. This is a spiritual discipline that we do as a community of faith to grow in our generosity and in our uh, tangible expression of placing God's kingdom first. A few announcements before we uh, just take up the offering and continue in worship. Number one, uh, KCBC starts, not this week, but... Leaders are, uh, leaders are heading up on Saturday, so just under a week from now. And uh, so there's youth and adults from all three sites heading up the lake to Dutch Harbor. And uh, it's going to be awesome. Um, I've been there for, man, I don't know how many years, but uh, it's always good. Brian's Um, so if you guys could pray for uh, all the leaders, um, so there's uh, yeah, quite a few of us going up, like I said, from all three sites, and um, if you pray for us for energy and patience, and uh, that we would be just a, a really good, positive, Christ-like example for uh, all the kids there, mm-hmm. and, uh, and of course also for the kids that And then just one more announcement. Uh, our student ministry pastor search committee has narrowed it down to a final candidate. And uh, Dan's just going to put a picture up here of uh, Rick Penner and his young family. It's coming. Maybe. 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 The suspense. Drum roll. Anyways, I'll tell you what's happening. And then, and then uh, yes. Perfect, Bruce. Awesome. So this is Rick Penner and Karis and their uh, little girl, Anaya. And uh, Rick is attending uh, Faith Covenant Church in Winnipeg. And uh, he has interviewed and candidated extremely well. And as far as it depends on us, our search committee has said, uh, we really believe this is uh, the person called to serve in this capacity for the next major season of this church's life. Uh, Our bylaws indicate that what needs to happen is there needs to be a three-site congregational meeting whenever we're calling a pastor. And so that's happening tomorrow night here at 6.30. It's going to be a short meeting. It's basically going to be, we're going to have Rick over Skype, 15-minute kind of quick testimony of his faith journey, and then 15 to 20 minutes of questions from the floor that people might have. And then afterwards, we're going to experiment with a new way of allowing all members. So if you're an official member of our church, then uh, you'll be given a link to a survey which will allow you to kind of say yay or nay in terms of inviting him for the call. So that's again tomorrow night here at 6.30. We know that it's not ideal timing, but we thought in all of July there really is no ideal. So we're just going to try and make it happen. And, uh, but as being a part of the search committee, I just want to thank those who served. I'm going to forget them if I name off all the names. 
We had a lot of really diligent people who asked good questions, who were careful, not reactive, uh, took their role very seriously. It was a pleasure to serve with them. And uh, we're really excited to forward uh, Rick, um, his name, put his name forward to candidacy. So yeah, if you could show up to that. And that's not, sorry, this meeting isn't just for members. Anybody can come out to this. Um, it's just the voting that will happen afterwards will be uh, for members only. Mike? No, no. But we need a quorum with the vo voting, and that's why we're doing electronic, because in July it might be hard to get a voting meeting. So we're being a little tricky. <laughs> legit tricky, not like subterfuge. Like, it's legitimate. So, yeah. So let me pray for the offering, and then we'll continue in worship. God, thank you for the good things that are happening in and through our community. As we continue to give now, God... Um, we want to recognize that you are the Lord of all. And we ask that you would bless these funds to the benefit and furtherance of your kingdom, not our agenda. And uh, like um, Justin was saying, for all the leaders and the students uh, uh, preparing for KCBC, God, we pray a blessing over them that even now this week that you'd begin to work in their hearts and prepare them, strengthen them for all the ways they're going to be called to love and serve and give. And we pray for uh, Rick and his family in our church as we move into this final stage of discernment. God, we, we want the right fit. We want your will to be done and your kingdom to come, not our agenda to be served. And so if uh, Rick and his family are the right fit for this community and will lead to a flourishing and enhancement of our student ministries, God, then call him by your Holy Spirit. And if not, God, we give you full permission to shut the whole process down and we'll start it again because we are not interested in just filling a position. We want to hear your voice and respond accordingly. So give us um, discernment and wisdom in those things. In Jesus' name, amen.
Sunday school kids, come on up. Braden's ready. Hi, Abigail. Hi, Cash. Whoever gets to be upstairs with you guys today is going to have a super fun time. Hey, sorry. Okay, so every week we're learning a God question. We're learning about what it means to follow Jesus, or we're learning big words that sometimes Christians talk about, and we want to understand them better. And the big word from last week was justification. What does justification mean? And did anyone memorize our answer? It was a tough one. Not going to lie to you. Mm, no. Justification means our declared righteousness before God. One day, if you decide to become a Christian, the moment that you yield your life to Jesus, that you give your life to Jesus, God declares that you are a Christian. And Jesus' righteousness is given to you. And you are sealed as his son or daughter forever. And that's a really amazing hope. Because that means nothing can take you out of God's family. Our question for this week is another word that I love. So I'm going to say the word. I want you to repeat it after me. And I bet you there's a lot of adults here who don't even know what this word means. So we're all going to be learning together. And that word is sanctification. Can you guys say that with me? Sanctification. Very good. And sanctification is kind of a fancy word that means our gradual growth as a Christian. So when we become a Christian, God seals us. But when we first become a Christian, are we exactly like Jesus? Do we love God perfectly? No. Do we love people in our family and school and sports teams and in our lives perfectly? No. Cash is like, yeah, I got this, nailing it. But what God begins to do is he puts his Holy Spirit in us and he begins to work kind of behind the scenes in secret and he's growing us to make us more like Jesus. And that process of growing is called sanctification. And when you become a Christian, do you grow like this? I just always become more and more like Jesus. I never make mistakes. I'm just growing. Is that the way we grow? No. This is kind of the way we grow. I'm, I'm learning to follow Jesus. Oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I'm learning from it. Oh, making a mistake. Learning, growing, learning. And so I am growing, but it's also about learning to acknowledge the mistakes we make and then get help from Jesus to grow stronger. Jesus in John 17, 17 said, he prayed for us and he said, God, I want you to sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So let's pray for you guys this morning. I think Braden's head's going to explode. Okay. God, as these little ones go upstairs, may they have a great time relaxing and learning their video curriculum and just having fun together. Uh, may you bless them and watch over them. And we give you thanks for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a few things. Number one, some housekeeping. I have not been diligent in keeping up with my Indigo gift card giveaways. We invite our junior hires to fill out the sermon notes, and if they fill them out and bring them to me, their name gets entered into a draw, and at the end of the month, we draw these, and uh, I have not been diligent the last few months. So I actually had an extra draw. I was supposed to give up three, but I decided to give up four, and uh, Lucas Drieger got one of the winning cards, so I sent that along to him. And then Lauren, you got another draw win. And Callum, you got a draw win. 
score. So I didn't want to throw that too hard because I only have one eye. I don't want to inflict one eye this on someone else. And then, uh, um, uh, oh, the name's blanked. Uh, Schulhauser. Joel. Uh, he won, but he's not here today. Um, so I will keep that for him. But someone please remind me that uh, he won. So that was awesome. Also, it's the start of the month, and I share different dimensions in which I feel like God is challenging me to grow. Uh, I just use four categories that Jesus talked about, heart, soul, mind, and strength, as a way to challenge myself to pursue holistic discipleship. And so this month I'm working on, well, we're going on a big family vacation, leaving tomorrow for Calgary to fly back to Hamilton and visit family and friends. And I just obviously want to be present. I don't tend to vacation very well. It's hard for me to get out of work mode, so we're kind of taking a longer vacation, so hopefully... I can settle into a, a nice rhythm. And uh, yeah, that's uh, really looking forward to that. Soul, I've been always kind of flirted with a, like an actual prayer list. Like I, I kind of keep people's prayer requests in my head a lot of the time, and I either remember them or I don't. And what I'm trying to do now is actually make a list. So I've com been compiling a list of people's prayer requests. I want to be praying through those diligently. I think that's an area where I could use some sharpening. Uh, mind, I'm still putting together uh, some thoughts around Old Testament survey course, which I'm going to be de developing through Czech. And that's really been exciting, but also daunting. And then strength when I'm on vacation, not to just go into vacation mode and be inactive and um, eat hot dogs and everything else that I might be tempted to, but to really uh, work with my wife to make sure that I'm staying strong so that my capacity to serve our family and the people around us uh, stay strong as well. Okay, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10 this, for, this morning, verses 46 to 52. So I'm going to read through the passage, then teach through it, so you can follow along. If you don't know where it is in your Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. It's also going to be on your screen as well, though. Beginning at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. When I was nine years old, I was on pace to be legally blind by the time I was 11. I was born with a condition called posterior polymorphous dystrophy. It's a genetic condition that causes my body to form calcium deposits on the front layer of my eye, the cornea. It's sort of like a, a pair of glasses coming inside on a cold winter's day fogs up. In the same way, I was kind of losing my sight. My sight was deteriorating fairly quickly. And so the only solution was to get a corneal transplant. And so at age 10, I had my first transplant, and that is when they removed that front, kind of like the windshield of your car, remove that layer from the eye, put on a healthy cornea from a deceased uh, organ donor, and then stitch it. And the sutures are, that they use, that I still have in my eyes, are they're one-third the thickness of a human hair. 
So that gives you a sense of the precision involved. Within a few months of that first corneal transplant, uh, the, the world was opened up to me again. With my vision restored, there was all kinds of new possibilities and opportunities that were now on the table, that had been taken off the table. I had a series of corneal transplants. That wasn't my only one. I've actually had eight total between two eyes and ten operations total between, uh, in my surgical history. And many of those surgeries happened to recover vision, to recover failing sight, and each one at different times in my life allowed me to re-engage life in a way that was different because I could now see, whereas previously my sight was being taken from me. Now, one of the major themes in the Gospels, one of the miracles that all the Gospel, highlight, all, all the gospel writers highlight is Jesus restoring sight to the blind. That comes up pretty consistently in the Gospels. And this, like many things Jesus did, has kind of two layers of meaning, two layers of significance. In restoring sight to the blind, Jesus is obviously just having divine mercy upon those who are blind and giving them sight. So he's renewing their vision uh, physically. But the restoration of the physical impairment of blindness is also meant to be understood on on a spiritual level. In healing the blind, Jesus is revealing his larger mission to give all of humanity new eyes so that they can truly see who God is, who they are, and how they're called to live in the world. A lot of people today don't live with very much purpose, or they live with, I would say, a very stunted purpose. Maybe their own happiness, maybe in a vague sense, family and friends, maybe a, um, a framework of success. But those small, stunted goals of capital P purpose will never satisfy us. That's not the way we were designed to live. We were meant to live out a purpose that was grounded in God's redemptive mission into the world, to be the image bearers that uniquely you are called to be to bring light and life to this world. Now, as a pastor, when you're dealing with people who are struggling to enter into that purpose or who are just avoiding it altogether... The question kind of becomes, how do you motivate people into that divine purpose? A lot of people think that inspirational talks can do the trick. Maybe it's just a matter of a critical mass of shoulds. You just should all over people. Should, should, you, should do, you should be doing more. You should be doing this. You should, and maybe you'll just kind of break their psychological back and have them move into the life that you think that they're supposed to move into. If that doesn't work, you can kind of up the ante and use guilt or shaming tactics. Yet we never see Jesus doing those things. What Jesus does is he simply gives people new eyes to see. Because when people see differently, they live differently. And that's what I experienced growing up. When I see differently, physically, I live differently. I'm able to live differently. And when we see things differently in terms of our relationship with God, when we see who God is, when we see who we are in God, when we see the needs of the world, when we see other people as God sees them, you can't continue to live the life that you've been living. Something in your entire personhood changes and your posture and attitudes and behavior and intentions all slowly get reformed into a new kind of life. 
When people see differently, they live differently. And this is a story that testifies to that. Look in verse uh, 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, this blind beggar began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He's calling out over the crowds. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His disciples are like, yeah, this is going to be a political overthrow. He's going to establish his governmental earthly kingdom. This is awesome. And we're, we're marching towards Jerusalem. And, and there are these people, there's this dude over to the side. And he's making a racket and he's annoying. And, th- and everyone just kind of shuts him down because this isn't, like, don't get in Jesus' way. Jesus is doing important things. We, we just saw Jesus, the, the disciples kind of um, trying to, prevent the little children come to Jesus because they were like, Jesus is on to big stuff here. So can we not have these like little speed bumps along the way? Like just shoot, get out of here. And it's the same thing here. This blind beggar wants to reach out to Jesus. All the crowds around him were like, dude, just shut up. Like shut this down. You don't, who who are you? Like what? No. Like you think we're going to stop this procession for you? So they're discouraging him. But he doesn't stop. He keeps yelling louder and louder. Now, the text teaches us two things about Bartimaeus. Number one, teaches us very clearly he's socially powerless. He's socially powerless. He has lots of people discouraging him from making a scene, from getting to Jesus. He wants to get to Jesus. There's not even one person, not a family member, not a friend, not a member of the community. No one is fighting with or for this guy. Everybody's just like, shut this down, be quiet. You're making things awkward. This isn't about you. Just go back to begging. But we also see that he's economically powerless. He's a blind beggar. He's got a, he's got a cloak through which he, uh, like many poor people at the time, would kind of try to solicit alms. Now, he's likely poor and destitute as a result of his blindness. He's not gainfully employed. When you wrap that together, he's socially powerless. He's economically powerless. That's kind of the recipe for... Uh, just being a total marginalized outcast. This is someone who does not have very much going for him. In high school, I would have called a guy like this a loser. Uh, This is the kind of person uh, that we might see and and, and, uh, sitting kind of broken and busted and dejected on Baker Street. This is someone who, from a worldly point of view, has nothing to bring to the table. They're just kind of a symbol of the brokenness and the shame and the degradation of the human spirit. And and they are, although we're all image bearers, this is a really, we're all image bearers meant to act as a mirror to reflect God's light into the world. This is a pretty cracked mirror. And there's a lot of fault lines with this guy. And as Jesus passes by, Bartimaeus calls out, there's discouragement, and it says he shouts out all the more. And I love that about the story. This is a very short story in Mark, but there's a lot here. And just the fact that Bartimaeus keeps fighting, he's in a sense, we would say today, he's self-advocating. He doesn't care what people are saying around him. He's got chutzpah. He's got some fight in him. He's gotten to a place in his life where he, he, he's pursuing Jesus, and he's going to get to Jesus no matter what. And despite the enormous peer pressure around him, he cries out all the more. And I was thinking about that this week, and I wish someone would have told me, probably earlier on in my Christian life when I was in high school, I didn't become a Christian until I was grade nine, but to someone who's young, but really to all of us, 
don't let other people discourage you from following Jesus. Sometimes you are going to be wanting to be pursuing Jesus and everybody around you is just going to be trying to quiet you down and, sh- and, shut, and shut you down. And you remember Bartimaeus. You remember the guy who when everyone was like, dude, be quiet. You're not that important. You just need to just go sit in the corner. Go back to your life as you know it. And Bartimaeus is like, no, I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to yell louder. I'm going to push. I'm going to pursue Jesus. That's an awesome picture to me of chutzpah and faithfulness that we all need to be reminded of at different phases in our Christian life. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and he said, call him. Notice Jesus doesn't call him. He turns to the crowds and and to the disciples and he says, in a sense, you call him. You can talk in small groups or amongst yourselves. You can tease out, why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't Jesus say, I hear him. Hey, Bartimaeus, come over here. He has the crowd do it. There's an interesting, maybe some interesting reflections there. So he stops and he says, call him. They call to the blind man, hey, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now don't miss this. A cloak is used for two purposes. In the first century, you use it at night to cover yourself because the evenings can get cool to keep warm. And you use it to collect money. So again, in, in, in a few words, Mark is drawing it to, whenever there's details in the, in the Bible, just kind of ask yourself, why is that detail there? Because it's always there for a reason. When Mark makes note of the fact that Bartimaeus tosses aside his cloak, that is a symbol of, I don't need this anymore. I'm going to Jesus. There's a sense in which Bartimaeus is already anticipating a healing. I'm not going to have to be a beggar anymore. Remember the rich young ruler? We just learned about this last week. He comes to Jesus with all this wealth, and Jesus says, oh, it's only one thing you lack. Just give give all that up and follow me. Cast it aside, and the rich young ruler won't do it. He's like, ugh. No, thanks. I'll keep this. We see the opposite happening here. Where Bartimaeus has something that Jesus is calling him to break with. His life as he knows it. And by throwing off his cloak, Bartimaeus is in one sense declaring he is willing to leave his old life behind. See, in order to follow Jesus... You're gonna have to leave. You're gonna have to let go of life as you know it. In order to follow Jesus, you're gonna have to let go of life as you know it. Supremely, when you become a Christian. I'm not a Christian. Warming up to the idea, maybe I'm thinking it through. To bend the knee to Jesus and become a Christian means you do, in a sense, at least uh, in a real, as real as you know how, have to bring all of your wealth to Jesus and say, "This is all yours. My whole life it now belongs to you." But then what what does it mean to grow as a disciple? To grow as a disciple means to continually let go of of life as you know it, right? I can't grow as a disciple if my presumption is where I'm living now in my relationship with God is pretty much where it needs to be on all fronts. So now I just lock it in, kind of like cruise control, and I just live this life. No, I have to be willing to allow God through his Holy Spirit, through his word, usually in small and very gracious ways to say, Jeff, now's the time to let go of this. Now's the time to cast this aside. Now this is the time to take this up. Now this is the time to move in a direction. And every time we follow Jesus down the road, it's always a little scary. And the reason why it's scary is because we're walking away from life as we knew it. 
if you get convicted in your heart and say, I need to start loving my spouse much more faithfully and better, that can be scary because there's going to be this momentum of habits and history that's here. And to make good on that commitment to Jesus is going to mean you're going to have to be willing to leave behind that history and those bad habits. You're going to have to learn new habits. For you saying, I've been kind of floating in my faith, but I really want to follow Jesus. Okay, but that's going to mean you're going to have to cast aside some new habits and attitudes of apathy that maybe have accumulated over time. In order to follow Jesus at any stage of life, we have to reckon with the fact that we have to let go as life is, with life as we know it. So this blind beggar, he scrambles to Jesus. Jesus asks him a question, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question that he's just asked James and John that we looked at last week. But this question is awkward. Because if you saw a blind, desperate man make his way, fighting through crowds, making a racket, getting to Jesus, and then Jesus saying, what would you like me to do for you? That question would likely seem redundant. He's blind. I'm going to put my money on. He doesn't want to be blind anymore. Why ask that question? Well, this is the genius of Jesus. Because even though it's obvious to everyone around this blind beggar, what his issues are. He's a blind beggar. We all see it. We know this guy. So, obviously, he wants to be able to see, but it's never that obvious. It's never that obvious. Because in asking the question, Jesus is kind of putting the ball back in Bartimaeus's court. He's saying, is that actually what you want, Bartimaeus? Like, what do you want me to do for you? Why, are you? why have you fought to get to me? What do you want? See, he wants to see whether Bartimaeus really wants the new life that comes from being able to see things the way God intended. Now, he has to ask this question, and he asks it for the benefit of his disciples as well, because James and John, he asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And they basically said, we want power, fame, glory when you come into your kingdom. We want to be top dogs in your kingdom. So what does Bartimaeus really want? In a sense, this is a, a blank check. What do you want me to do for you? What does Bartimaeus really want? Does he want his vision restored? Because if Jesus gives Bartimaeus new vision, if he gives him his eyes, his life is going to have to change. His uh, entire worldview, literally and figuratively, is going to have to be radically different. How he spends his time, who he understands himself to be, uh, his role within the community, what he does for a living, how he spends his Monday through Sundays, everything is going to have to change if Jesus heals him. Because if Bartimaeus sees differently, he's going to have to live differently. He won't be able to revert to life as he knows it. Verse 51, the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Look at the difference between James and John. What do you want, James and John? Glory, power, fame. Bartimaeus, what do you want? I want to see. And we know that Bartimaeus is not simply asking for a physical miracle so that he can spend it on himself. Jesus, would you heal my eyes so that I can go off and live the life that I've always dreamed of living? And we know that because at the end of the encounter, it says he followed Jesus along the road. He wants to see 
who God is, who he was meant to be in, in, in God, so that he can faithfully live out that calling. He's not looking to just gain a miracle so that he can follow the devices and desires of his own heart. He wants to see Jesus in order to follow faithfully. Bartimaeus' healing is grounded in a desire to be a disciple of Jesus. Would you heal me, Jesus, so that I can follow you? I want to be a part of this mission. I understand what your kingdom is about. I don't want glory and fame for myself. I want to bring you glory and fame. Would you heal me so that I can see the world properly? It's not about me, Jesus, and I understand that. It's about you. I want to see. Now, if all that was happening in this passage was that there's a blind beggar, he's being healed of blindness by Jesus, that should be enough to inspire us to faith in Christ. It's a short story, it's a beautiful story, but there is a deeper level of kind of healing and meaning happening here. And when we see it, I think it'll drive us into a new appreciation for what Mark is doing here in the gospel, and it'll drive us to worship Jesus and see his glory in a fresh way. You'll note in in most of your Bibles, it's going to say that the blind beggar's name was Bartimaeus, and in brackets it'll say son of Timaeus, and that's because Bartimaeus isn't his proper name. Uh, Bar Timaeus is Aramaic for son of Timaeus. And Timaeus is a Greek name, so it's not even a Jewish, uh, first century Jewish person. This is a Greek person. This is a Gentile, a non-Jew, who is, doesn't have a, na- a proper name. He's the son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus. And that means that Mark identifies him as someone who's defined by his father. Right? Who is this man? He's the son of Timaeus. He's defined by his father. And for this uh, son of Timaeus, that isn't a good thing because Timaeus in Greek is a name that means highly favored or highly honored, one of high honor. And so whoever this man's father was, whoever this Timaeus was, was someone who by inference had wealth, had power, had fame. All markers in the ancient world of someone that you would say, yeah, this is someone highly favored. And there's this really tragic irony in this passage because Bartimaeus, as the son to a father of high honor, is a blind beggar. And that means, a little bit of conjecture here, but I I think the Gospels would bear it out. That means that this man's father likely had the resources. He could have leveraged the resources, his wealth, his social standing, this man of high honor, he could have leveraged his resources to help his son, but he doesn't. This son of Timaeus is left on the side of the road without hope in this world, abandoned by his father of high honor. We don't know when he was abandoned. Maybe it was when Timaeus was very young. Sorry, when Bartimaeus was very young, maybe his father Timaeus saw his son as an affront to his honor. Maybe like the rich young ruler, I thought of this this week. Maybe Timaeus had an encounter with maybe a doctor who said, we can help your son, but it's going to have to take a lot of your wealth. And maybe Timaeus said, "Uh, no. And like the rich young ruler, chose keeping his wealth over, in one sense, doing the right thing. 
We don't know. But what we do know is that when this story begins, this son of Timaeus, this Bartimaeus, is a blind beggar sitting on the roadside, abandoned and invisible to those around him, socially powerless, economically powerless. But Jesus sees him, Jesus hears him, Jesus calls him, and Jesus stepping in and healing Bartimaeus restores him to his true identity. And I'm not sure if you can get a clearer um, living parable of the gospel than you can get in this story. See, in ancient cultures, one's name was thought to be shorthand for their very character and destiny. We, we think of names a little bit more cosmetically. Or we just like the sound of this name or the way it works with the, la- with the, the given name and the surname or this is a place that I visited that was meaningful to me so I want to name my child this. Totally fine doing that. But in the ancient world, both to Jews and to Greeks, the name was shorthand for one's very character and destiny. So for example, Jesus, right? His, Jesus' name means God saves, which is a pretty <laughs> direct reflection of his character and in a sense, divinely appointed destiny. And, that should, and understanding that about names should help us to understand why it's significant whenever God changes people's names in the Bible, right? Abraham, Abram, the f- father, becomes Abraham, father of many. It's not just a cosmetic change. God gives people a new name in order to confer a new identity on them, and with that identity, a new mission. God, in renaming someone, is essentially saying, this is, what you, this is who you've been told you are. I'm revealing to you who you actually are, and in doing that, this is the new mission that opens up for you. So in the Old Testament, we have God renaming people, and in the New Testament, we have Jesus renaming people. He takes Simon whose name means God has heard, and he names him Peter, which means rock, in John 1, 42. But Jesus doesn't give Bartimaeus a new name here. He doesn't give him a new name. And that's because the son of Timaeus, he doesn't need a new name. He needs a new and redeemed understanding of the name that he already has. Son of Timaeus... You are son to a father of high honor, but a father who only saw your brokenness and a father who abandoned you and left you for dead at the side of the road. But today, I'm restoring your sight so that you can see, so that you can see that you are Bartimaeus. You are a son of high honor. You are son to a heavenly father of genuine high honor who sought you out to bring healing and restoration not just to your eyes but to all the places where sin and death and shame have overrun your life and so Bartimaeus let the chains of a corrupted and false identity fall from you and rise to a new life and to a new mission And I think what God, through Mark, wants us to see is he wants us to see ourselves in the place of Bartimaeus in the story. We are all blind Bartimaeuses. We're carrying around these false identities rooted in sin and shame. We're living life assuming that even if there is a God, he's probably abandoned us and left us to die on the side of the road 
and we're without hope in this world. But Jesus, in both word and deed, brings good news that there is a God. And not just any kind of God, not a capricious God, but a God of high honor and high favor, who at great cost to himself has redeemed us out of a place of brokenness, sin and shame, and set us on a new road and a new life and a new destiny. It's an amazing, beautiful picture of the gospel. And it leaves me with two questions. The first question for us is this. What do we actually want Jesus to do for us? What do we want Jesus to do for us? Is the prayer of our heart, like James and John, I have this life I want to live, and uh, if you could make that happen, Jesus, that would be awesome. I want power, glory, wealth, fame, uh, happiness, satisfaction, success, marriage, 2.5 children, all, all the, I, want, I want all of this. Can you, can you make that happen? Or do we want to follow in Bartimaeus' footsteps? Is the, is, the, is the fundamental prayer of our heart, God, I want to see. I want to see who you are clearly. I want to see who I am in you clearly. And I want to see my mission clearly. I know that if I seek first that, all the other stuff will find its place. I don't want to live chasing shadows. I don't want to live chasing and living out of this false identity. I want to know who I am in you. If you are not a Christian here this morning, a good prayer to pray this week, if you have the guts to do it, is, Jesus, I want to see. Would you reveal yourself to me? I don't care how you do it. Would you reveal yourself to me? And if you are a Christian here, a good prayer for you to do this week would be to say, God, I want to see you more clearly. Or maybe you've lost your sight. Maybe your sight, like mine, when I was at different stages of being an adolescent, was fading, was deteriorating, and I needed to have my vision restored. The Bible says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe your prayer has to be, God, I had sight, I used to know who you are, and I had clarity, and now it's gotten fuzzy and muddied, and uh, would you restore my sight? I want to see you clearly again so that I can follow you down the road into your mission. So the first question is, what do you want what do we want Jesus to do for us? And the second question is this. This morning, as you sit here, metaphorically, do you find yourself sitting at the side of the road? Are the crowds passing you by because you're invisible to them? You're kind of nothing to them? They would look at you like they did the blind Bartimaeus and say, you're a reject, you're a loser, you're a failure. You have nothing to offer. Or have you been living without hope in this world. Maybe you're defined by a false identity. You're the son of some person, some situation, some event, and that defines who you are. The world has defined you, and maybe you've taken that identity to heart, and so you're shackled by these invisible chains that are very real, real nonetheless, and they hold you down, and they hold you back from God's best for you then hear the encouragement that Scripture gives. Cheer up. Get on your feet because he is calling you. Let's pray. Jesus, would we pursue you? May we have the chutzpah of Bartimaeus. May we fight to move into your mission even when people around us are discouraging us? And would you give us eyes to see, God, who you are, who we are, how we're called to live in this world?
help us to see. We want to see you, Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we pray and ask. Amen.